This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Endo 101. It has been such a journey talking about all the aspects of this enigmatic disease called endometriosis. I really hope you have learned as much as I did and you have felt a bit more armed with information as you continue to fight this disease. Today's episode will be all about the myths that have plagued this disease. There are so many inaccuracies we have always known to fly around when it comes to the disease. Myths such as pregnancy cures endometriosis can do a lot more harm than good. Therefore, today Tom and I will be discussing some of these myths and Tom will be giving us an idea of the origins or the reasons why these untruths find their way into society. We want you to know that even if you or someone you know has been diagnosed with endometriosis, you do not remain without hope. There are many treatment approaches that your doctors can take considering your individual case and you can regain your quality of life back. Most importantly, please never forget that you are not alone. There is an army of women, fellow sufferers, doctors, researchers and advocates fighting for you and with you. With that said, let's get right to today's conversation. So welcome back. Thank you, Tenny. Nice to be here again. So episode six, we've we've actually been going on and on, and I'm really impressed that we've come to episode six. So today's episode is all about myths of endometriosis. So let's jump right to it, shall we? Go for it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to start with the most famous one, which is that pregnancy is a cure for endo. Can you please share why this myth has been going round and what it is founded on? So why has it appeared from nowhere and uh, maybe not from nowhere but you know what has caused people to talk about this myth and say pregnancy is a cure and also if I go to my doctor and he or she says something like that to me how would you advise that I respond? Absolutely I think it's something that a lot of people would potentially have been told in the past or or some of these myths you know get spread around that you know other people have heard that other people have been told this but it's definitely one that's been pervasive and you know a lot of the medical community perhaps think this myth to be true as well so I think that the basis of it is probably and as we've talked about in previous episodes about how endometriosis responds to different hormonal stimuli so there's the two hormones which are sort of balanced out in the body there's the estrogen and the progesterone and how the endometrium, the lining of the womb, where it should be, grows and proliferates, as we call it, and becomes inflammatory and things in response to the estrogen. And it has exactly the same response or same effect on endometriosis, which is outside the lining of the womb. So the endometriosis, whether it's in the ovary, whether it's in the rectovaginal space, whether it's free on the peritoneum, the diaphragm, wherever else, grows, proliferates, becomes inflammatory in response to estrogen. The hormone that holds it at bay and stabilizes it is progesterone. So a lot of people would be taking hormonal treatment for endometriosis. And the mainstay of that is progesterone or to reduce the amount of estrogen affecting it. So the progesterone only pill, whether that's a low dose or whether that's a high dose of progesterone, 
things like the combined hormonal contraceptive, which have estrogen and progesterone in, but actually avoid having high levels of estrogen affecting endometriosis, and the injections which block the ovary producing estrogen. So all of these things are designed to reduce the amount of estrogen affecting the endometriosis. What happens during pregnancy is there's a huge amount of progesterone circulating in the body. There's a huge amount, mainly produced by the placenta. Progesterone is a great hormone for pregnancy. It's progestational. That's where it gets its name from. And it helps support a pregnancy growing and developing helps stop the womb contracting prematurely, and it creates the nutrient-rich environment for an embryo to seed and implant into the womb just after conception takes place. So I think probably the myth comes from the amount of progesterone circulating in the body during pregnancy that usually has the effect that endometriosis goes a little bit quiet. So the endometriosis, of course, does not disappear. It's still there. It's a structural thing. We can see when we look, either you can see it on an ultrasound scan, an MRI scan, or if you can't see it, then you see it at laparoscopy or during surgery. So it hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't disappeared. But during the pregnancy, in some people, with that excess doses of progesterone the endometriosis is exposed to, it just calms down a little bit. And people might find their symptoms improve as a result. The other thing perhaps is that pregnancy is full of a whole host of new and interesting symptoms that people might not have had before. And, and it just changes the body in such a fundamental way that actually symptoms may well adjust or shift a little bit afterwards. You know, the process of childbirth and parturition has undoubted effects on the body and, and sometimes gives people new symptoms afterwards. So it might be that perhaps the symptoms of endo change a little bit, but it is indeed, as you have said, a myth that it's going to cure this endometriosis because it's basically the same as having a high-dose progesterone treatment for a period of time. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, that doesn't cure endometriosis either. Yeah. It can potentially stop it developing quite as much. It can potentially mean it's less inflammatory. So when the time comes, if the time comes for an operation where we'd aim to excise that endometriosis, it can certainly make that process potentially a little bit smoother in terms of being able to excise it fully, but it's not going to cure it. And the endometriosis, sadly is likely to still be there after the pregnancy. It might be that during the process, the symptoms are a little bit lower or indeed a little bit different afterwards, but it would be a fallacy to say it went away entirely. I think to answer your second part of the question, you know, if you go to a doctor and they say that pregnancy is going to be a cure, I think just being aware of, of, of the nature of the disease is and understanding a little bit of the background is, is paramount here. And it goes back to I think we, I don't know whether you said it in the very first episode, but one of the, the good things about being a specialist in endometriosis is how much, generally speaking, patients know about the condition. Um, the difficulty is the patients I see are referred to a tertiary endometriosis center and they've sadly been through the process for quite some time before they come to see someone like us. You know, it isn't always the case, but we know from recent reports about delays in diagnosis and number of visits to general practitioners, number of laparoscopies before they're able to have a, a, a laparoscopy where we potentially excise disease is sadly very high. And it might have been they've heard these sorts of myths before. So not all women will know this sort of thing about endometriosis, and they may well take people's word for it. Um, and why wouldn't they? You know, doctors, generally speaking, I would defend as being a trustworthy group. Yeah. But about 
knowledge and understanding of the condition. And I think we're getting there. I think you know, this series, for example, is, 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 is its primary aim is to help raise awareness and understanding of the disease. So people are aware it's a potential explanation for their symptoms and they're aware on, of, the, of the sort of steps of management and what's appropriate and what's not necessarily. And would you ever recommend getting pregnant as a solution to something? Well, if pregnancy isn't in your list of things to do that year, then absolutely not. You know, it's, it's a huge thing that you should consider carefully with family and everything else. And as we discussed last time, I think when we were talking about subfertility, sadly, getting pregnant isn't, you know, as easy a thing to do often for women with endometriosis. So it's not a particularly helpful thing to say, nor is it true that it's a cure for endometriosis. It may well be that during the pregnancy symptoms are happily a little bit less than they would be otherwise. And that's great. Um, but invariably, they're likely to return afterwards, in which case the treatment options remain, broadly speaking, around the same. So pregnancy doesn't make things better or worse. So would you advise against pregnancy or for pregnancy? Well, no, not really. It's not going to change things in terms of the longer term treatment of endometriosis. So pregnancy is very much a personal choice for, for each individual. Okay. That is amazing. Okay, next myth. Many people are unaware that endometriosis can actually be found in children and even those who have not yet experienced puberty. I remember we also mentioned in previous episodes that we you found endometriosis has actually been found in embryos. So can we discuss why this myth is particularly dangerous and what signs to look for as well in children or teens? who haven't had their periods yet, but um, could be uh, prone or could potentially have endometriosis. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we going back, you know, talking about endometriosis in very, very young people, and I think we, we talked about it in being in either newborn babies or, or fetuses. So those are babies before they're delivered. We refer to in, in medicine as being fetus rather than a, a newborn. That we talked about in the context of where endometriosis comes from and the different theories about it, whether it's retrograde menstruation, whether it's the tissue type changing from one thing to another, so normal peritoneum to endometriosis-like tissue, or indeed it's growing there as part of the development of the reproductive tract, which, which develops down through the abdomen, and there's something called the malarian tract where the female reproductive organs fuse in the midline, and, and it can be found in... Sadly, it's often autopsy cases or post-mortem examinations of, of babies that have sadly died for whatever reason, and they might find evidence of endometriosis. We wouldn't expect this, however, to be symptomatic at that age group. And that's related to the lack of activation of the endometriosis. So although it's there, it wouldn't normally be giving people symptoms. So before puberty happens, the ovaries are lying relatively inactive. They're not yet producing those surges of estrogen and progesterone that are associated with ovulation and the menstrual cycle. So happily in that situation, endometriosis doesn't normally present and cause too many problems. But of course, puberty happens, you know, depending on, on individuals, anything from the age of kind of 10 to 15, 16, sometimes even earlier in certain circumstances. So it can be that endometriosis is active and causing people severe symptoms and pain from, you know, primary school. And that 
isn't particularly well understood and, and, and not well recognized. There's a certain perception, and I think we talk about it as being a bit of a myth, that endometriosis is a disease that people get as they get older. And it's about cumulative amounts of time they've had periods and everything else. And that does seem to be a bit of a fallacy. Of course, we don't diagnose endometriosis as much in adolescents or young girls, simply because we don't look for it. And there is a balance there because surgery undoubtedly at a younger age can be a little bit more risky. Um, children in terms of recovery and risk and everything else, perhaps again in a child who might not be able to fully understand the risks and benefits of procedures and, and things, would you want to put them through a laparoscopy? Well, probably not. But should you recognize that endometriosis is a potential cause of symptoms? Is it normal to have very heavy, very painful periods from the work go? Well, no, it's not. People are often told, you know, going through the puberty, oh, it's normal to have painful periods, they'll settle down. But actually, there's degrees of normality. And sometimes it might be way off the scale. Yeah. It's so tricky with pain, isn't it? You know, how can you relate someone else's pain as normal or not? I don't know what pain I feel. I might feel pain 10 times worse than someone else. I don't know. But broadly yeah. speaking, we all kind of understand what's normal and, and what we think isn't normal. And can your doctor say to you what's normal and what's not? Well, we don't know. Pain is incredibly difficult to interpret. So we know from looking at um, studies of women who are subsequently found to have endometriosis, one of the most sensitive and, uh, and specific markers for it is days off school. Yeah. It's needing to take time off away from work when you're having your period, because that's not normal. Mm -hmm. you know, most people can still, you might feel a little bit of discomfort, but actually you're still functional. Whereas those perhaps with endometriosis find that it's so debilitating, you can't get up, you can't go to work, you can't see friends, and it's really interrupting your life. So that's certainly something that, that's, that's to be uh, uh, recognized. I think it's something that we shouldn't be afraid of diagnosing earlier. And we sadly see sometimes very, very early in people's reproductive lives, women in their late teens and early 20s who have really quite severe disease. It's true, I think we did talk about this before, that endometriosis usually doesn't change from the moment you diagnose it. So you see it and it's stage four, and it, of course, will stay stage four, or you see it and it's superficial peritoneal implants, and it will stay superficial peritoneal implants. So this kind of goes back to the root cause of it and almost dealing with those endometriosis as being different conditions, superficial endometriosis and deep infiltrating endometriosis being something fundamentally different that yeah. we don't really understand. And there's no reason why someone who's 16 and having really painful periods can't have deep infiltrating endometriosis even then. Yes, she might not have been having periods for 10, 20 years, but that other process could be going on. She could be one of these people who actually had endometriosis when she was a tiny newborn baby, and then it's been reactivated by the process of menstruation and the ovaries producing estrogen. I think we will understand more about that as time goes on, and as we understand more about the genesis of the condition. If we're looking at it being purely retrograde menstruation, then there are theories about the number of times you need to have menstruated before it will start to become a problem. And yeah. that's the kind of old fashioned view, which usually represents it being a problem of women in slightly older age groups in their later 20s, 30s, 40s. But I think we're understanding that it's about getting that to be more widely recognized and, and it being thought of as a possible cause of severe painful periods or chronic pelvic pain, even in young adolescents, and having perhaps the bravery to look for it and treat it, being aware of all the risks and benefits involved. But why shouldn't we treat endometriosis in 16, 17 year olds? Well, we absolutely should, because if that means they have 10 years where they're not debilitated and missing yeah. school, missing work and missing the best years of their lives, then absolutely we should be treating it.
Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, that bravery. I think the key word you said was bravery. I feel like many doctors don't want to treat it. But, well, we know that gold standard of diagnosis in the first place is uh, probably yeah. surgery and the people shy away from that. But like you said, we don't want them to spend years, decades, you know, in pain when we could probably diagnose them earlier and start treatment earlier. So that's really, really vital. Or indeed, you know, we're assuming every diagnostic laparoscopy finds endometriosis. It might not. But if we don't find endometriosis, then actually you have the confidence to to look for other things or treat things in another direction. So it's helpful both ways. But I think we also need to recognize that there are definite downsides to doing surgery. And there are definite downsides to doing surgery, particularly on, you know, younger people. But I think we have this concept in medicine where we think people are viewed as entirely competent to consent to procedures and make their own mind up, you know, well before the age of adulthood. So 16 year old girls, there's lots, you know, particularly in gynecology, when we're prescribing things like contraceptives, when women might be starting to have intercourse, we don't need to necessarily involve people's parents for that discussion, actually, because if we can view a 16 year old to be entirely competent and confident, to be able to make the decision and balance the risks and benefits of of taking something like a contraceptive pill and starting to have intercourse and things, then we can translate that to making decision-making around surgery as well. Yeah, I agree. That's totally, I totally agree with that. Okay. Let's go to the next myth. This one, (laughs) this is a, another very common misconception and Mm. there are loads of people that currently feel well had done by, by, their medical team and this is hysterectomy so a lot of one misconception is that hysterectomy cures endometriosis now i know that for many it's actually a treatment plan that works for them based on their individual situation Mm -hmm. but many people are led falsely to believe that it will be the end of the endometriosis so can we talk about why once again, hysterectomy is not a cure for endometriosis. And if you have your doctor telling you that it is, what should you say or how should you respond? Absolutely. So it all goes back to our primary definition of what endometriosis is. Yeah. So it's endometrial tissue, which is in the womb, but it's outside the womb. It's not in the womb anymore. It's in the pelvis. It's on the ovaries. It's in the rectovaginal septum. It's on the diaphragm. And removing the uterus is not going to necessarily help with that. So hysterectomy is removing the uterus and usually removing the cervix as well. So the cervix we call about the neck of the womb. So something called a subtotal hysterectomy is removing the uterus without the cervix. But in most circumstances, it's a total hysterectomy. Of course, when you haven't got a uterus anymore, you don't have periods um, because there's no of that normal endometrial lining that sheds and and every time you, you menstruate. And you absolutely correctly said in some people, hysterectomy does significantly help. And there's lots of evidence to show looking at women who have hysterectomy to quotes unquote, well, treat endometriosis, let's say rather than cure endometriosis, they do find improvement of symptoms. So the actual menstruation is therefore stopped. And some people find that isn't as painful and it's helpful. But is it going to cure all endometriosis? Well, no, it's not because we've got endometriosis that could still could be on the ovaries, it still could be on the peritoneum. Some people as part of their hysterectomy, and this depends mainly on how old the woman is, would have their ovaries removed at the same time. We call that oophorectomy. And with that comes something called a salpingectomy, which is removing the fallopian tubes, because simply having the ovaries and womb removed anymore, you really don't need the fallopian tubes and they can only cause problems. If you are doing a total hysterectomy and removing the ovaries, well, actually, this goes back to that hormonal thing we talked about in terms of reducing the amount of estrogen the body has. 
So if you reduce the amount of estrogen, potentially we are inadvertently treating and helping endometriosis that could be entirely out of the pelvis. So diaphragmatic disease, for example, or disease on the surface of the bladder that we haven't really treated surgically could get a little bit better if we remove the ovaries. But it is absolutely untrue to say that hysterectomy will cure any endometriosis because it's not fundamentally in the womb at the time. As part of a hysterectomy, if there's deep infiltrating disease, you might also have a nodule removed that could be on the back of the vagina or the cervix, and that can definitely help symptoms. But that's getting more into the realms of excisional surgery on top of a hysterectomy, just a part of the operation. In actual fact, this reminds me of a case we were talking about today in our endometriosis meeting, where we meet together in the MDT, as we call it, the multidisciplinary team. We've got a patient who has had a, a previous hysterectomy, and she's had a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. So that's removing both fallopian tubes and both ovaries. She had them as different procedures. So if you were to look, she hasn't previously, she hasn't actually got anything left that a gynecologist would be interested in because she's not got an ovary, yeah. not got um, a, a uterus, and not got fallopian tubes. And yet she's still got problems with endometriosis because there's a, there's a nodule there of deep infiltration disease, which is sitting at the top of the vagina. So it is still there where it was before, and it's still active. She hasn't got ovaries anymore, but of course, if we remove the ovaries on someone before the natural age of the menopause, we always advise taking HRT because otherwise we can run into problems with thinning bones, that's osteoporosis, run into problems with cardiac disease in later life, with neurocognitive disease, there's increased risk of dementia and things with early menopause. So you definitely need to take HRT. HRT involves estrogen, estrogen activates endometriosis. So she's had all the surgery that you know you can get commonly in the gynecological textbook and yet yeah. there's still endometriosis there so sort of case in point that the hysterectomy doesn't cure it where a bit of this comes from is that yes it does help some women if you're not having periods anymore and a lot of women have had endometriosis and they've had hysterectomies and they're much better there may well be an element of the other condition i think we have talked about before called adenomyosis in these situations mm. so that's where the endometrium it isn't existing outside the womb, or it might be in combination with that, which is endometriosis, but it's grown into the muscle layer of the womb. So that makes periods really painful because the inflammation isn't just in that superficial layer that's shedding, it's deeper down. And that's that deep down cramping sensation of analogous to childbirth type contractions. Mm -hmm. And hysterectomy does happily cure that because the muscle layer of the womb goes with the whole lot. Um, and then the adenomyosis is gone. But having said that, there can be other things like adenomyoma, which is a plaque of adenomyosis that can grow out of the womb as well. So it's not always exclusively, oh <laughs> but it really in, it, it boils down to how much surgery you're having. If you're having a hysterectomy and you're having an excision of the endometriosis, then yes, absolutely. We can confidently say that that is a potential cure, not always if there's residual disease, but it can be a cure. But a hysterectomy on its own, is unlikely um, to be a cure, quotes unquote, but it can help people's symptoms in a lot of cases. Why don't you take a break, grab a snack, or go get hydrated and we will be back in 15 seconds. Okay, so let's go to the next one. This one, I don't know if to call it a myth or just something mm. that is said often. 
Now we know that endometriosis is a really difficult and complex disease. If, if anyone has listened to this series, I'm sure they've got that by now that endometriosis is an enigma and um, it can therefore manifest in a lot of emotional distress. And as a result, many patients who go to their doctors are told that this is the pain is all in their head. Mm -hmm. And we, especially those of us that advocate in this community feel like this is a form of gaslighting because people are made to think that their experience isn't real. So can we talk about this a bit and talk about how this, the very real manifestation of endometriosis can result in emotional problems like depression and anxiety? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that is an experience that a lot of people would have had. And I would say not just by doctors, you know, other people in their lives, whether it's teachers at school, bosses at work, other colleagues, you know, be they male or female, there's a perception that, you know, everyone has heavy, painful periods, get on with it, you know? But endometriosis is different from that. It's not just a painful period. It's something else going on. I think fundamentally, doctors try their best and try to take people's symptoms seriously and take them at face value. But there's always a willingness in medicine to want to know what's causing it. You know, we want a medical explanation. You're having chest pain because there's a blockage in your coronary arteries. It makes sense. We understand that. That's, you know, quite good. We've all learned that in medical school. Excellent. You might be having a heart attack. We'll send you to the hospital. This needs emergency treatment. With the sort of spectrum of pelvic pain and painful periods, that don't always have an obvious cause when we look for scans, when we look at blood tests. You know, we talked about diagnosis being really delayed due to symptoms being variable, due to there not being a good test, apart from, uh, frankly, invasive, risky tests that surgery. Things aren't always taken as seriously as they could be. It's in the, the realm of the sort of what we call medically unexplained symptoms, you know, or, 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 or an extreme end of normality. How can a person really understand how much pain the other person is in is that normal is it not well I don't know I'm going to say it's it is and you should probably not worry about it take pain relief and get on with life well that's not a very useful answer you're absolutely right to draw parallels with endometriosis and mental health problems you know depression anxiety are definitely overrepresented in anyone with any sort of chronic pain it's utterly understandable and I think we shouldn't have any stigma about that, sort of recognizing that the two are linked in a way. And there's a chicken and egg thing, obviously. If you're in a lot of pain, then you're going to potentially find yourself a little bit more isolated in terms of work and social life. And we know that can lead to problems. I wouldn't equally be afraid of some of the treatments that are potentially diagnosed, uh, potentially, sorry, used to treat mental health difficulties that can actually help with the pain as well. And it's not always saying it's entirely in your head, but pain fundamentally is sort of interpretation of a peripheral stimulus that's causing pain. Yes, there's endometriosis causing pain, but also if there are other issues and CBT can help and antidepressants might be able to help, well, that can treat the other end of things. Yes, the endometriosis is causing the pain, but the depression anxiety that's happening on top of this, well, we can treat both together. But we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't put it down to being all mental health entirely in your head or you complaining about what's normal for other people, because there could very easily. And in a lot of cases, there is something much more serious going on. And you need to be given the time to talk about the experiences you've had, talk about the pain you're in and given the opportunity to have it investigated and have it treated. And that means referral. That might mean laparoscopy. That might mean MRI scans and things like that. 
and not just to explain these things away, be fobbed off and told to, you know, get out more or whatever else people are told for this. So I agree entirely. It's a hugely distressing condition. It undoubtedly does have links to mental health difficulties, but it can't be explained away as being that. Absolutely not. Okay, that was beautiful. What are your experiences there, Tenny? Well, I would say, yes, it's, I find it that endometriosis actually has a lot of a huge impact on your mental state, because I think just knowing that, so if I start from when I was diagnosed, you know, you get there and it's almost like a bittersweet feeling. So you're happy that you've been diagnosed and now you know that you, you're not crazy and something wasn't right all along, but then you are really terrified because it's not like, you know, you then get medication and they said take and this is your cured you know it's almost yeah. like the beginning of a whole new world like I Why got not? diagnosed in 2018 and it feels like five to ten years now like I feel like yeah. so exhausted from you know daily thinking about pain always being in pain you know before you blink it's time for your next period and you feel like you just recovered from the last one Actually. um how does it change so you say when you were diagnosed you felt like finally look I've got recognition that this is what's going on I'm not crazy it's not all in your head what did it change your attitude to when you had the pain was the pain any different for you when you knew what was causing it versus when you were being told that it was just you so I think I would say the pain actually didn't change it mm. was the same I would say for me it's just that this time there was just a little like bit of me that understood why so it's a it's a weird feeling because okay so going back when I felt that I was in too much pain and the mm. pain was different to my friends and family and I was you know crawling on the floor I had like you feel like I'm hoping that it's true that this is just mine is just slightly more painful and maybe when I have kids because there's also one myth that I don't know if it's commonly said but a lot of people say don't worry when you have kids so this is different from pregnancy cures it in a way but they just say the pain reduces after kids almost like maybe something opens up after kids I don't know what I don't know what that is so a part of me was like, okay, hopefully this is true, that mine is just slightly worse than others. And I tried to get on with it. But then over time, as the pain got worse, and I was obviously missing like two, three days of work every single month. Yeah. A part of Then the other part of me knew that this cannot be normal. There has to be Absolutely. something wrong. So you knew all along. Yeah. So I felt that something was wrong, but I was really terrified. And I was hoping it wasn't something like, I guess, fatal. You know, you just... Your brain is just working over time, trying to figure out what it is. And then when I was diagnosed, I the pain didn't lessen or anything. So I didn't feel like, okay, it's less. It was still as bad, but I now had a re I now knew why. And then I started doing a lot of research and obviously things like taking out sugar helped slightly. So it wouldn't be that I would not be in any pain. I'll still be in pain. I'll probably still miss work, but maybe if I start taking my painkillers before or every four hours. So I started creating like ways to manage it even better mm-hmm. than I was before. So um, I think that's what started helping me, but the yeah. pain, yeah, the pain was just, Absolutely. yeah. And I think that's, 
what we need to recognize and what about raising awareness is, is you know, that there is a link between mental health disorders and painful symptoms in some people. But it's not something that's going to be a problem every month. It's not something that's going to mean you're going back and back and back to doctors again and again and again. It's not something that's not going to respond to treatment. Mm. So, you know, I think that the, the, the raising awareness, which should really help. And what we found in the things like the all party parliamentary group is the number of people who visited their GP, you know, more than 10 times yeah. with the same sorts of symptoms. Those are the things that should really be raising red flags you know, way before the 10th visit to say, actually, well, you know what, there's something else going on here. Yeah. This is more than just mm. an extreme version of normality. Let's at least investigate this. Yeah. And if people are like me, I don't know, I guess some people go to their GPs for every single thing, but I feel like many of us, especially those of us that have been in so much pain a lot, and you almost have to explain yourself to family, to work. You don't want to go to the GP. So for you to go 10 times, you had no other choice like you felt like you're dying and you just need answers and I remember that when I was diagnosed as well I went to work I was having this really bad pain on my right on my like I'll say right ovary but right Mm -hmm. lower abdomen and it was so bad for days I was just being constant pain and this was outside of the period I think that's when I knew that I had to figure it out because I was thinking what if it's my appendix what if it's like I need to know and that day after work I just you know left my office and went straight to the A&E and said I have to something needs to change okay. like I'm not going anywhere yeah. until and that's kind of how eventually I got there yeah, but it's pretty shocking how it has to go to that level before yeah. things are really you know thoroughly yeah. investigated and actually uh, a, a move away and I'm guilty of it I've been guilty of it in this series you know, thinking about individuals in the context is just being a problem that's related to periods when actual fact a chronic pelvic pain a pelvic pain that isn't around the time of menstruation is a better indicator of endometriosis than painful periods on its own and and that again is all about raising awareness disassociating as being purely a a cyclically driven problem yeah thank you so much for that that was really good so um let me mention this one this one is not as common as um i don't think a lot of people know about this one but i have heard people say that endometriosis can be caused by abortion and I don't know. I'm, I don't know if that's. I don't true. think that really needs much discussion, Tenny. It's uh, <laughs> absolutely no link whatsoever. Yeah, that's good. I've actually. I think that one comes from um, something else I read one time that um, endometriosis is linked to promiscuity. It which... probably comes from a misogynist. I think. Yeah, um, I would say that. <laughs> one of those things which sadly has existed in the past, and something the medical community is not immune from. That's judging women. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad that we got to that quickly. <laughs> we got <laughs> Little to, else more to say, I think. Of that yeah. one really quickly. Absolute nonsense. No link to promiscuity, no link to uh, abortions, no link to anything like that. Okay. So are there any other ones that um, maybe I haven't mentioned, but you've heard people talk about that we can... Yeah, on the topic of, you know, thinking about sex and everything, there were some studies looking at it, you know, in terms of how endometriosis happened, thinking about retrograde menstruation, looking at intercourse during menstruation. It was sort of based in theory in a way, thinking about, well, if retrograde menstruation is happening, we know that orgasm is about contraction of the uterine muscle to an extent. Could there be more retrograde menstruation of having intercourse? when you're on your period, but it was absolutely emphatically proved not to be related 
So that potentially is a myth people would have heard of. You know, number of sexual partners is all absolute nonsense, not linked to STIs or anything like that, nor does it seem to be linked in the evidence to anything like alcohol consumption, coffee consumption, drug use that's been looked at, all of those kind of things. So, you know, is it a lifestyle disease? Is it a disease that happens because of the way you choose to live your life? Absolutely not. Sadly, I think it's something that women are probably born with. And it's linked. We know that it's there's no gene we've found for it, but it does run in families. And if you had a first degree relative with endometriosis, you are sadly more likely to have endometriosis yourself. It's not how you live your life. Okay. So on the subject of um, misconceptions and untruths and all of that, I wanted us to end this episode. This has been really good, by the way. I've enjoyed talking about the myths of endometriosis. Yeah, we'd make all of which are nonsense. Well, the clues in the name, of course. <laughs> we didn't talk about truths today. We talked about myths. <laughs> yeah, we talked about myths and then we said what the truth was. So Absolutely. that works. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I wanted us to end today with just almost like an advice or a roundup of, um, you know, life with endometriosis. Hmm. And when I got diagnosed and started my journey, I... I came across a lot of articles and information out there and some people saying things like, you know, you can actually get rid of endometriosis without surgery, without painkillers, you know, you can become an endo boss and endo babe and all of that, which I guess has some truths to it in the sense that with endometriosis, for me, in my opinion, it's a very holistic, it requires a very holistic and mm-hmm. multidisciplinary approach. So Absolutely. I think that it, it requires probably surgery based on your personal circumstance, requires um, painkillers that work for you, requires you trying to look at your diet and reducing like inflammatory foods, might even require pelvic therapy because as we know, sometimes the pain, you could have surgery and still be in pain, mm-hmm. probably because something with your muscles, your pelvic muscles and all of that. So I just wanted us to talk about what you would say or what, what you would tell a woman who, you know, has endometriosis, probably severe, she's in a lot of pain. How, yeah. what's the truth <laughs> to I deal think- with this disease? Absolutely. It's exactly as you said, Tenny, you know, it's it's a little bit of everything. It's putting all of those things together. Surgery plays its part. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's one that's quite easy and sort of literal to think about. There's a problem. We remove it. Problem gone. Sadly, not always the case, but we can try it. But of course, surgery has risks. Surgery is not something you should go into lightly. Um, medical treatment has a role. So all the hormonal treatments we talked about, absolutely are they you know they're going to help be an adjunct to surgery they can also potentially be a a treatment that someone can stay on without needing an operation and if being on a hormonal contraceptive pill helps your symptoms and you're happy to continue that way and you might or might not be taking something like that for contraception anyway then absolutely fine if that works for you so surgery isn't for everyone because it is a condition that causes such severe pain it's definitely worth thinking about other strategies to manage pain, either in combination or on their own. So simple pain relief, you know, you say finding something that works for you. I think that's really important. There's pros and cons to everything. It's trying to potentially not get onto a pain relief that's then going to cause more harm than good. So people often have problems with strong opiate pain relief. So morphine and morphine-like medication that you can end up being on for far longer than you ever intended. 
and they can have nasty side effects in terms of mood changes, in terms of constipation, in terms of dependence. So find something that's right for you and works for you. And, and you know, even if that is something that's morphine-like, then understanding the risks and understanding your strategies for dealing with things and potentially stepping back down from things and everything else. And as well as that, you know, talk about being an endo boss and thinking about how you live your life. Absolutely. You know, these sort of things do help with pain. And we talk about lifestyle and mindfulness and everything else. Is it a cure? Is it going to make the endometriosis go away? In terms of someone like me doing a laparoscopy, would I still see the little spots there or the deep nodules there or the cysts there? Well, yes, probably yes. You know, I, I think that's unlikely to change things. But in terms of how much effect that's going to have on you as a person, well, actually, if everything else in life is, you know, you're, you're on top of, you're enjoying things, your diet's good, you're outside, then maybe that is helpful. But it is a cure. Is it a solve all? No. And I would be cautious of anyone who told you that, you know, there are certain supplements you can take or diets you can be on or where you live your life that's going to change things dramatically for you. I think it's a very individual thing. Nor would I say my line of work is going to be an absolute solution for everyone. There's lots of evidence to show that hormonal treatments work, that surgery works, but it's a big thing to go into. And it sadly doesn't help everyone in terms of every aspect of their disease. Endometriosis is not just a pelvic syndrome. It affects every part of the body. People talk about fatigue and muscle pains and bloating and all those kind of things. And me removing a cyst from the ovary isn't necessarily going to help all of that. So other lifestyle factors, things that help you could really be beneficial. So I wouldn't say, you know, go wholeheartedly for that nutritionist who tells you they're going to change your life, but they might have some impact. If you're on board with that, then go for it. That is a wrap. Yes. <laughs> <said> it all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. I hope you've enjoyed these. Uh, I really have, Tenny. Thank you very much for inviting me. As much as I have, I've really enjoyed you as well. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't listened to other episodes, make sure you do. We will end the series with a case study on a woman who was diagnosed with endometriosis and the treatment route that her doctors took, and generally what decisions and actions to take if you have endometriosis. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love to know Join me on Instagram and Facebook. You can also follow the Instagram page of Chelsea Center for Minimal Invasive Gynecology at ccmig.london, where Tom shares a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. Don't forget to share, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Till next time, remember, you are not defined by endometriosis.